0: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, a whole long time ago, there lived a man. Amen. Similar to last week, it wasn't so, so long ago, and it wasn't so, so far away. It was actually in Cairo, Egypt in 1950, that Kamal Naguib al was born. Um, he was born to a Christian family that loved him very much, and um, he uh, developed a very good friendship with his father, um, and not so much, not so much like a relationship of not so much like a relationship like of authority, but really of friends. And even from a very young age, his father would entrust him with uh, caring for the family and taking care of them, and so on. Um, and uh, he got great marks in school, was top of his class. Um, I'm saving you some of the stories, uh, some of the, the um, details of his early life uh, because uh, we really want to get to the story itself. Um, and he, uh, he went, went on, studied engineering, graduated in 1973, became an associate professor immediately at Ayn Shams University um, and was, uh, was r- incredibly successful. Uh, financially he was compensated very well, he would tutor um, and he would do all his tutoring for free and his colleagues would get so frustrated with him because they all charged. Uh, but um, he would tell them, I can't possibly ask people for money for that which God has given me uh, for free. He would he would give um, all of his money to the poor, uh, he was typically paid on the first of the month and and by the second or third of the month, he'd go to his mom and ask her if she could lend him some money. And she'd be like, uh, she, she knew he wasn't, uh, he was very frugal in his living and, uh, lived, you know, personally was very careful and very austere in his living. So she knew that he wasn't 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 wasting the money. She just didn't know where it was going. Later on, uh, many other events, of which also the details will spare you right now, um, revealed that he was, supporting many poor people, paying, paying for their health care and, and kids' schooling, um, and so on. Um, a little later on, his father had a stroke and eventually he departed to paradise. And at that time, he really started to question his own his, his, his own mortality and, and think about his own life and ask himself, where am I going and what am I doing? Um, and seeing as he was a university professor, his summers were somewhat available so he would go and do pilgrimages to the monasteries and he would go to st macarius monastery and spend time there and uh, once when he was contemplating the monastic life and wondering whether that's what he should do or not he uh, he heard the weekend uh, reading the psalm chanting the psalm and saying listen o daughter and incline your ears forget your own people and your father's house also uh, uh, for the king will greatly desire your beauty, and because he is the Lord, worship him. And he really felt that that was a divine call to him personally to, uh, to, to leave the world and become a monk. But He didn't know for sure, yes or no, and other events later on confirmed that to him. So uh, on his, when he went home, he wrote a resignation letter, and he kept it in the drawer for three months, Continuing to examine these thoughts and these feelings to see whether they were indeed from God. And again, I'll spare you some details because we want to get to the we want to get to the heart of the story itself. But 1975, he was tonsured a monk. So at this point, he's 25 years old, um, and um, and he uh, sorry he entered the monastery when he was 25. When he was 25, and a few years later, he was tonsured a monk. Um, and uh, he became the he, the errand man of the of the monastery. So the abbot would send him on various different missions to go and collect things and get things, deliver things, pick things up by the needs of the monastery. Um, and uh, just to give you a little bit an, an idea of of his character, uh, because it will inform us a little bit in, in the, the latter in the next part of his story. Um, uh, he, uh, as a young monk, he saw a man uh, carrying a whole lot of pottery uh, on a dolly, um, as is common in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, if you haven't been to Cairo or, or seen what the what the roads are like there, um, you can, um, I mean, you can just imagine. Like, there's everything possibly imaginable on the road, from, uh, from cars, motorcycles, um, scooters, bicycles, people, um, Livestock, chickens, you know, uh, uh, trolleys pulled um, by. And so, um, yeah, and so this man with this dolly carrying some pottery, the wheel fell off the dolly and the pottery all fell and smashed. And the man just was weeping over it, saying, I don't have the money, I don't have the money. And so he stopped this collie and the pottery like it so you can deliver it to the person who needs it so that you're not uh, you're not at a loss and while you're at it since he was an engineer and he was really handy he uh, got some tools out of his truck and filled fixed the wheel on the dolly as everybody was watching this monk fixing this dolly of this poor man um, on the road another time because he was the errand guy he uh... he um, was, uh, got into a, you know, his parking his, his, his the, the monastery uh, pickup truck uh, and and he just bumped the car that was parked in front of him. And the man who owned the car, you know, started shouting and yelling and cursing him and, and he didn't open his mouth at all. And the man started to beat him and to hit him uh, and, and was cursing at him and he didn't open his mouth at all. Um, and when the man went com- finally was exhausted and panting from beating him, and shouting and yelling at him. Um, he told them, uh, look, I tell you what, why don't we go together in your car and we'll get your car fixed and I'll pay for all of the repairs. And so the man uh, got in the car and took him with him and continued to curse at him and swear at him and, and all of this. And they finally got the car. It was a very minor little bump. Finally got it to uh, a mechanic and the mechanic looked at it and he told him, what, what are you making such a fuss about? This is nothing. And and I fix it for you, and and, and the cost it will cost nothing, and this and that. And why are you giving the the monk such a hard time, and and all of this? And he paid for the repairs, Um, and the the man kind of came to his senses and told him, I'm sorry. Just the shock of it all, and you know I shouldn't have been so mean to you. And and Abunabuchur told him, No, 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 no. Don't say I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'm the one who hit you. And you know, uh, we're brothers. We're brothers. There's nothing. There's nothing between family. There's nothing between, we're like, you're like family to me and you'll always be welcome in the monastery. You come visit the monastery and I want you to come to the monastery and be my guest. And the man started to cry. Um, And the people in the street witnessed all of this and the man started to to cry. And since then, the man was an electrical, uh, you know, uh, uh, components distributor. And so any of the needs of the monastery, from then on, he would send them all of their parts and supplies for electrical supplies for free. Um, and he would visit the monastery all the time, the man who owned the car. And and so that's the kind of the character of Abuna Butras. Another time his car had broken down and he needed to go run an errand for the monastery. And so he, uh, um, there was a, a family that was visiting the monastery. And they said, we'll take you back to Cairo so you can do whatever business you need to do for the monastery. So they said, okay. And uh, he got in the car and, and they had a servant girl that was with them. Uh, and she was sitting in the back and the moment he sat in the car, she started screaming and shrieking um, and uh, they asked her what's wrong with you and she started shouting in a voice that wasn't hers, this man, get him out of the car, I hate him, I don't want him, I don't want him in the car next to me, get him out of the car, I hate him and uh, they told her well, what's wrong, what's wrong with you, he's, he's a monk, he's a, they're just taking him back to Cairo with us like it's not a big deal. She said no, no, he has a piece of wood, he has a piece of wood in his pocket. I hate that wood, I hate, and he's whispering something, he's whispering against me, he's trying to burn me, he's trying, of course it was, she was demon-possessed, and it was the demon inside of her who was saying all of these things, and, uh, and Abuna prayed for her, and she settled down. Um, and so that was kind of his character. Um, anyhow, at the age of, uh, the ripe age of 45, uh, he, he got sick, and, and for three days, for many weeks in a row, He was like singing and he was rejoicing like it was like some great thing that he was sick Um, and then uh, in in March uh, in April um, There was like a three day three days uh, three day prodrome where he was just talking about paradise and he became you know so ill it was hard for him to leave The monastery Uh, that him hard for him to leave his cell Um, and so Other monks would come and visit him and bring him his needs and so on, and he would talk to them about paradise, or he would uh, embrace them and hug them and and cry and tell them, I'm going to miss you, I'm really going to miss you, I I, I want you to know that I really love you, Um, and then uh, on uh, Wednesday, March 22nd, 1995, he had a heart attack, and they called doctors in and so on, and he had passed away. so that's not really a very scary story of well no no come on now you promised us some you promised us something to send some chills down our spine. I mean come on, you can do better than that can't you So um, so the story really starts but you needed to know his you needed to know his character you needed to know who this person was so you can appreciate his story. Um, during those three days, uh, as he was sitting in his, in his cell, he heard a knock at the door. And uh, he went to go and answer the door. And when he opened the door, he found that it was the angel of death. And the angel of death said to him, it's your time. And it it occurred to him that to ask to take a pen and paper with him and to write the story of what would happen to his soul. And the angel permitted him and told him, "You, you can take a pen and paper, but you're not allowed to write that which no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind could ever conceive. That which is unutterable to men, which he wouldn't have been able to write in words anyway. And he says that the hour of his death was the most terrifying moment in his life. And the, the sense of dread that he felt was, was just unimaginable. And he says that he felt he was preparing himself, his, his whole life, He had been preparing himself for this and um, you may not know this, but it's a common practice in many monasteries to, they ask the novices to spend a significant amount of time um, in the the cemetery or in the crypts or, you know, and in some monasteries where they have crypts, crypts are like, uh, like, like rooms and in, in each room they'll have shelves and they just put the coffins on shelves so it's not underground, or even if it is, it, it's, uh, the, you know, they're the, the, the boxes of bones that are not buried. Um, they'll tell them, you know, like, they have a register of where all the monks are and like every evening the, the father confessor of the of the novice will will just shuffle all the bodies around and tell them, you know, take father so-and-so from, spot 1 and put him in spot 43, take Father So-and-so from 43, put him in 2, take Father So-and-so from 2, put him in 56, and they'll just, and they'll spend, they'll spend months, they'll spend months carrying coffins of bones, skulls, from here, with all respect, of course, these are monks, many of them are saints, and moving them, just shuffling them around, you know, and the idea is to is to, to instill in them the, the sense of the the imminent sense of death, that at any moment, death may come, and death may come, and it will be your turn, before you know it. Our life is like a vapor, like St. James says. And so, despite all of that, he says that the sense of dread at that moment, when the angel of death told him it's your time, was proportional to his neglect of his spiritual life, and his neglect of of caring for his soul. So, if if Father Butros is saying that that moment was of the greatest dread of his life. Uh, well, what do I have to say about me? What do I have to say for myself? And all of a sudden he had an overwhelming sense of two very real and, and opposing truths. Of um, his sins on the one hand, uh, and, and and all of his neglect of his spiritual life and his neglect of doing good and and all of the things good things he could have done but he neglected to do on one the one hand and on the other hand the virtues that the holy spirit had developed in him the intercessions of the saints and the angels the good deeds that he had done one leading him to despair the other leading to him to to hope and it's like the two the hope of paradise and 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 the despair of eternal damnation were so clear before him they were like tearing him apart. And all of this he was still in, in, in the flesh. And, and he looked around in his cell to see what else he would want to ask to take. And he says, in that moment, it's like everything around me became of, of worthless value. And he said, in that moment, I couldn't think, or he wrote, I couldn't think of a single thing that could have any potential value to me. And there was, there was really nothing that I could think of that I that I would want to to, to take um, to take with me. And uh, at that moment, the angel of death took an, an, one of his old robes, one of his old cassocks, and told gave it to him, told him here, put this on. And in that moment, he realized that he was completely naked, and he put that old cassock on, and he began to feel like like he was getting squeezed through the the, the narrow neck of a bottle um, and he realized that his soul at that moment was leaving his spirit his, his spirit and his soul were leaving his body and that it's like it's like he was getting and and in that moment he felt like he, he was he was he had been released from something that was really really tight and constricting him and he was released into the open expanse um, and in, in 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 that moment he felt like the entire you could see the entire universe and it was just like a like a drop in the palm of the creator. And it was something so incredibly small. As his body fell to the ground and the flood, um, the other, other monks came rushing in and, and all of a sudden, he could see he could, like he could see their thoughts. He could hear their thoughts. And, and one of his, his friends was overwhelmed with sorrow for him. And another saw him. And and, and 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 thoughts of contrition entered his heart and he, he ran immediately he ran out at the, at realizing that his death his death would also come soon. And he ran to his cell to go and repent. And another monk who had sort of been his rival was was uh, you know happy for him but also sad that that you know Bunabotra beat him to it. Um and he, he he beat him he beat him to the to paradise. Um, And each one of the monks, he could see what they were thinking, and all of their thoughts seemed so trivial to him. And the monks who who loved him, and the monks who hated him, and it all seemed like nonsense to him, it all seemed like uh, like something so, so, so meaningless. And the angel of death told him, now is the time, now is the most terrifying moment ever of your crossing over from this life into the next. and he says it was the most horrid experience any human could ever, could ever undergo. And in that moment, he looked around him and he could see, he could see the demons uh, all around him. He could see the demons uh, gathered, uh, gathered all around him. And one of them seemed more mighty than the others. And there was an arrow going through his head and his beard was plucked out and he looked and and, and in that moment, he saw a hatred in him, in that demon towards him. And the scariness of the story is that it's it, this is a true story. Now, whether it's allegorical or not, whether it's whether it's symbolic or, or, or not, the, the the truths in it are true and certified by many by many others. I mean, whether it's factual or not is is up to you to decide. Um, but these are these are the notes that that Father butchers wrote of his of his departure, and he sees this demon who is he recognizes him and and he realizes he, he realizes that he's he's he recognizes knowing this demon from his whole life since since his his baptism uh, and since his renunciation of Satan. It's like this is the demon that decided that decided to take his renunciation personally, you know, and um, when he renounced Satan um, at his baptism. um, And he sees other demons gathered all around with with all kinds of snares and traps to catch him. And at the same time, he sees angels. And the angels are gathered around as well, and they're fiery, and they're simple, and, and they only speak in praises and hymns and they were gentle, and he recognized one of them also in particular, and, and when he noticed him, he noticed that, this, that this, this angel, he recognized and he felt very close to him, like he had a really close bond with him, like he had known him for his whole life, and that was his, his guardian angel. And the angels outnumbered the demons, but he was still terrified, despite the fact that the angels were more. And as he looked down at his robe, at his, his old grungy robe, he noticed some stains on it. And when he looked at the stains carefully, he felt like the stains were familiar to him. He felt like the stains were not something foreign to him, but something that he almost knew intimately. And when he looked more carefully at the stains, he started to see in them, the faces of the demons, and he would look up at the demons, and he could see the demons, and he would look at the stains, and he could see the faces of the stains. And then he would would look up and he would see demons that didn't have stains on his robe, and he recognized them, and he he, he couldn't recognize those demons. And so he asked death, he asked him, who are the demons that I can't recognize? And he said to him, those are the demons that that tried to tempt you but they weren't successful or they tempted you and you offered a sincere repentance and you really expelled them from your life. At the same time he saw another soul which also death had collected at the same time and was traveling with him. And when he looked at the robe of the other soul, of the other soul, he noticed that there were less stains on that man's robe. And he regretted so much that he had not repented more. And he felt that, look, it, was, it would have been possible for me to repent more. It would have been possible for me to reject temptation more and to live a more righteous life. It was possible because this other man was more righteous than me. And he has less stains on his robe than me. But he also had some stains. And, and at that moment, all of a sudden, he saw to the west like doors opening with a slam. And shrieks and howls and and suffering and agony and people screaming and torture and pain coming from there. And and he looked and the only thought that could could fill his mind at that moment could fill him at that moment is is oh God please don't let me go there, like the the deepest repulsion in him to to, to never be there to to be to push everything away. And in that same moment, as he felt so utterly, deeply repelled, he saw doors open gracefully in the east. And he could hear the same chanting of the angels coming from the east, from that door in the east. And he recognized that to be paradise and haze. And in that moment of his recognition of that, he could see the stains on his robe, like pulling his robe, like puppet strings, pulling him, pulling him, pulling him, pulling him towards Hades. And he didn't know what to do. And and he could see that the other soul, the same thing was happening, but not with not at the same rate, not at the same pace as him, as he was pull being pulled by all these puppet strings. and and and, and the demons were cackling with laughter and the angels were standing around. And it's like he was looking to the angels like, do something, stop, save me. And as he was getting pulled and dragged towards Hades, to the shrieking and the torture, he screamed in a last-ditch effort, Lord Jesus Christ, where is your salvation? Where is your redemption? Who is without sin, even if his life were were but a single day? Who Who could possibly have lived in righteousness? And the Lord Jesus Christ appeared in that moment. And he sat, looked to, to the Lord, and he said to the Lord, Jesus, save me! And the Lord reached out to him, and he said to him, yes, I will save you. And he took the gown off of him, off of a whole of the church. And the Lord was, was was in a garment of light, glowing in... in, in the, the angels were glowing like with white light, but the Lord Jesus was glowing in a golden light, golden light like, like the sun. He said it was it was brighter than brighter than the sun and yet was 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 not blinding him. And the Lord took his robe off of him. And the Lord took his robe, glowing in, in perfect and golden light, and put it on a butras. And the Lord Jesus Christ put the old grungy stained robe on himself. And the stains just slipped off of the Lord, as though the stains were were were, were oil and water just slipping off, and the demons who were pulling got sucked into Hades. And so Abu quickly looked over to the other soul, more righteous than himself, and saw that he was still, the other man was still being pulled into Hades. And so he said to him, Quick! Quick! Call on the Lord! Call on the Lord! He will save you! Call on Him! And the other soul looked to Abu and said to him, Lord. What Lord? What did he speak of? He said to Quick, call on Jesus. Call on Jesus Christ. He will save you. And the man told him, Who is this Jesus? I don't know who you're talking to. And in that moment, his soul got him. And Abuna Nabuchos, then, all the angels gathered around him, and they gathered him up and they ushered him into paradise. As he as he entered paradise, he says, This is something which I can't see. This is something of which truly it is true. No eye have seen, no mind has heard, no mind could ever no no, no no mind no ear has heard, no mind could ever conceive. Truly, truly, I don't I don't even know what to say if I were to try to tell you about it. And as the angels were gathering him and taking him through paradise, he started to recognize he started to recognize people that he knew in paradise. He started to recognize saints that he had loved. And saints that he the saints that he had loved and saints that he had um, he had prayed to all his life and asked for their prayers and their intercessions and uh he says he he would see the great ascetics who spent so much of their life fasting and their their stomach was just glowing with light and he saw the great martyrs um who had been beheaded or or tortured or like think of like like saint james the mangled the, a persian saint who they uh, they they they, they they cut off his, his, his members, like, joint by joint. You know, every day they'd go and chip off another piece, you know, in, in, in trying to convince him to recant Christ. And like a saint like that, all of, all of his joints were glowing with light. And he saw each saint, whatever they had given, whatever they had offered, as a, a love offering to Christ was glowing with light. And truly, truly, it was true that even a, a glass of, of water, of cold water offered to someone in the name of Christ, in the name of a disciple, did not lose its reward. And the Lord had proved himself to be faithful, to remember every offering of love that the saints had offered. And, of course, the moment came where he thought of himself, well, what, well, what about me? What glory am I sharing with Christ in, in this place of glory? And he looked down at his robe that had been the, on the Lord Jesus Christ had been glowing all in light brighter than the sun, and on him it was just there was one he says there was one thread there was one thread going around the robe that was glowing with light. But the light coming from that thread he said was so bright it was blinding, and he was he was so happy to ha- have at least. That thread, just a thread of glowing and shining with light as his love offering, what he offered to Christ. And he saw St. Mary, and she was glowing in white light, all in white, all of her was light. And he realized truly, 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 she is the mother of light. And in his joy, he 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 was overwhelmed with joy, and he says that, the joy he experienced in that moment was more than all of the dread that he suffered in that crossing over time, between when his soul left his body and when and when, he, and when he found himself in paradise. And then he found himself standing with the Lord Christ, and the Lord was revealing to him mysteries and wonders and things from before time began. He was just rejoicing, in awe of the Lord, and in awe of his, of his goodness. The Lord looked at him with a smile, and He told him, But Butros, my, my son, now is not your time. He said, what? What do you mean? And He says to him, You have to go back for your brother. Just for, just for a very short time. Just for a very short time, you have to go back. He said, but, but I can't leave here. And he said to him, No, now you have to go back for a short time. And then you will come back to me for good. And in that moment, in that moment, the Lord Christ put his hand on him. And in that moment, he woke up. And he found him he had been sleeping on his desk in his cell. He looked around his cell. There was nobody there. No saints, no angels, no demons, nobody. Just his empty cell. And he thought to himself in that moment, if paradise is as beautiful as it is, as I saw it to be, and if death is as terrifying as I experienced it to be, let me repent now while I can't. And in that moment when he stood up to pray and to offer a deeper repentance, a more genuine repentance, a, 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 a more sincere repentance, a, a more true rejection of the temptations which had tempted him, in that moment that he stood up to pray, he looked down at his desk and he found his notes. And everything from his dreams there in his very own handwriting. And he realized that this could not have been a dream. He could not have been just asleep, because his notes were there. So he, remember, he was sick, so he called for the abbot, and the abbot came to visit him, and he shared this with him. And the abbot told him, let us pray. Let us pray and, and see what this what this truly is and let us decide what we should do. And so a day passed, another day passed, and then the abbot decided to gather all the monks. And he gathered all the monks and he wanted to call for Abuna Butra to come and to tell them because he believed at that time by the Spirit he knew that this story was true and that whether, whether these are facts or these are, this is the perception of Butros but this is really what he perceived, and, and he really wrote what he knew, to, to, what, he, what he saw and what he knew to be true. When he had gathered all the monks, and they had rung the bells of the, of the monastery, and they called, they went to go get Butros and they opened his cell, and they found that he had departed. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.